Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's open our Bibles to Titus 2. And uh, I will be reading from chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to, show their, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching so show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder when you hear the word theology, theology, what comes into your mind? What comes into your mind? The word theology. Do you think of stodgy old guys in a basement somewhere writing big books with big words? Do you think of something that, that pastors and only pastors go to school to study? Maybe you think of What Christians, with your mind, should stop arguing about. So they can get back to the really important work of loving their neighbors. Maybe you don't know what in the world theology is, and you're just kind of waiting for me to get to the end of the possibilities. But, you know, in your mind, you think, well, it's got to be some spiritual something. I just, I don't know what it is. Well, I'll help you out, friend. It's not complicated. Theology is simply the study of God. That's it. The study of God. And it is the most important thing you will ever do as a human being. Why? That's a bold statement. The most important thing I will ever do as a human being. Yeah. Yeah, because as your knowledge of God goes, so goes the course of your life. You tracking with me? You, you, you embrace true theology. You've chosen the path of joy and life. You embrace false theology. Lies about God. You've chosen the path of sorrow and death. As A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God 
is the most important thing about all. But it's not easy, this theology thing. Maybe it looks easy if you're listening to pastors preach, but it is it is not easy, which is why hours of preparation go into sermons like this. Okay? When, when it's not easy. And let's be honest. When, when push comes to shove, would you rather think hard about the Bible? Read a challenging Christian book? Or watch the latest episode of Ted Lasso on Apple TV? What feels more fun? What feels more relaxing? What feels more life-giving? Listen carefully to these words from a professor of mine by the name of Steve Wellham. We have privileged religious experience and pragmatics over disciplined thinking about Scripture. For many, theology is a hard sell, especially in an age of social media where careful thought is replaced by images and tweets. Theology has little cash value. What we want are instant answers to meet our felt needs, and we especially fear divisions within the church that often occur when careful theological thinking confronts false teaching. Then he writes, theology is not optional for the church. It is fundamental to our thinking rightly about God, the self, and the world. Theology is not a discretionary exercise. It is essential for the life and health of the church. And whether we realize it or not, everyone has some kind of theology. But the most significant question for us is whether our theology is true to Scripture or not. If it's not, this is serious. Since wrong ideas about God and Scripture result in disastrous consequences. He's he's right. He's not exaggerating for a fact. If if you get your theology wrong, if you buy into false doctrine, spiritual lies about who God is and what he requires of us, you know what that will do? That will shipwreck your faith. It will destroy your soul. And that is exactly what was happening on the island of Crete. And the churches the first century. When Paul wrote this letter to a pastor named Titus, professing Christians were what? Look at Titus 1.14. They were devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. They were believing lies about God. And the lies were showing up in the way they lived. Look at verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They said, oh yeah, we're Christians. No worries, Paul. No worries, Paul. But their lives were no different than the world. And here's what's fascinating. 
Paul doesn't say in response, well, just stop it. (laughs) Stop lying. Stop doing evil. Stop being a what? A lazy glutton, verse 12. Just stop it. Titus, make them change their behavior and start keeping God's rules. Who's with me? No. Now look at Titus 2.1. What is Paul's divinely inspired response? Titus, but as for you, in contrast to all these false teachers spreading all these lies about God, pal, do this. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Hold on, Paul. I think you got the Cretans confused with the Galatians. <laughs> we, we don't have a doctrinal problem here. We have a behavioral We got people lying and cheating and carousing with those who do. (laughs) Why are you flagging the need for sound doctrine or, or true theology? We have a behavioral problem. Friend, it's because you can't separate what you believe about God from the way you live. You can't separate what you believe about God from the way you live. They're they're always connected, which is why, listen, sound doctrine is more than just a list of things the Bible says are true about God. Sound doctrine includes how Scripture instructs us to live in light of what is true about God. It's not, sound doctrine is not less than the historical facts of the gospel. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the grave. But it is more than the historical facts of the gospel, significantly more, because sound doctrine includes the kind of life that is consistent with the truth of the gospel. This is the question sound doctrine answers. In response to the person and work of Christ, how then should we live? How then should we live? That's Sound doctrine. In response to the person and work of Christ, that's critical, how then should we live? It's not just, how should you live? Well, Muslims have an idea, Christians have an idea. What's your idea? What works for you? No. In response to the person and work of Christ, the unchanging truth of the gospel, how then should we live? That's sound doctrine. And that means sound doctrine isn't just something we know. It's something we practice. So what does it look like to practice sound doctrine? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Because that's what Titus chapter 2, verses 2 through 10 are all about. I'll summarize it like this. What's it look like to practice sound doctrine? Practicing sound doctrine means we disciple one another to display the worth of Jesus in every season of life. That's what practicing sound doctrine looks like. It means means discipling one another. We're going to talk about that. To display the worth of Jesus. We're going to talk about that in every season of life. And that's actually where we're going to start. 
in every season. Let's break that down in a couple categories, okay? Point number one, we practice sound doctrine in the details of life. We practice it in the details of life. Let me clear up two very common misunderstandings as we dive into the instructions Paul gives here to various groups in the church so I don't have to repeat myself every time we get to a new group, okay? Listen very carefully to me. First, cultural norms are not the essence of what Titus 2 is teaching. So we must not say, it was good for men to practice self-control and women to be submissive to their husbands back then, but times have changed. Our needs have changed. We're, We're more enlightened. No, my friends. No, no, no. These are not lifestyle suggestions. This is sound doctrine. This, this is the kind of living, what we're reading here, the kind of living that's, that's consistent with the truth of who God is and what Jesus has done for us. And keep this in mind. Our God has not changed since the first century. If what was consistent with who God is and what he's done for us looked like this in the first century, at root, the principles must look exactly the same today. Why? Because our God has not changed. So it's not cultural norms. Second, for each of these groups, the expressions of godliness Paul highlights here, they are uniquely important, not exhaustive or exclusive. What do I mean? I mean Paul's saying, be sure to give attention to these virtues. Not only give attention to these virtues. For example, the fact that he doesn't tell young men to be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness does not mean if you're a young man listening to me, you don't need to worry about being sound in faith and love and steadfastness, okay? The fact that he doesn't tell older women to love their husbands doesn't mean they're all unmarried. Or that if you are married as an older woman, You're finally free to treat your husband however you want. (laughs) No, 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 no. Paul's addressing common categories here. Okay? Which requires speaking in general terms and allows him to identify specific expressions of godliness that are uniquely important for particular groups. So if you're an older woman, I'll let you self-associate with that. Caring for children still? Or you were a younger woman who has no children? Please, 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 this morning, do not write off Paul as a stereotyping male or pick up your red equal opportunity pen and go to work. Don't do that, okay? Focus on what directly applies to you, your present season of life, and what God has called other people, and other seasons of life to do. We're going to come back to why you need to keep your eye on both of those things in just a few minutes, okay? So, sound doctrine is practiced in the details of life. That's what we're talking about, point number one. And Paul starts in verse two, notice this, with older men. Why? Well, because as the older men in any church go, so goes that church. Brothers, you have a leadership 
responsibility among the people of God. If you don't believe that, come to our gender and sexuality class next Sunday, okay? You have a leadership responsibility. God has called you, brothers, to set the tone around here, to to set the bar for godliness. And listen, if you're retired right now and, and physical work feels less important, know that as you are getting older, your spiritual work in this church is only getting more important. You're called to lead. He starts with you. You must be sober-minded. What's that mean? It means the fact that King Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead grips your heart. The fear of the Lord that governs your affections and your your actions. You you feel the weight of eternity. You, You know the pleasures of this world are fleeting. Your your supreme aim in life isn't isn't to please yourself. It's to please the Lord. And you must be dignified. Paul isn't talking here about, you know, walking through church really slowly (laughs) or wearing a tie every Sunday. No. It's, It's about the spiritual ballast and stability and and strength that that an older man should bring to his physical family, if you have one, and at a minimum, to your spiritual family, the church. A godly older man is is self-controlled. You refuse to waste your life staring at a TV for 20 hours a week, or, or just coasting through your days and your retired years taking the path of least resistance. You you order your days in accordance to God's priorities and God's purposes. You you give attention to your physical health. Why? So you have the strength you need to serve God's people for, for generations and decades to come. And you're not frivolous with your money. You channel all of your resources. 100%, not 10% toward the cause of God's kingdom, not your own. In short, the gospel produces older men that are sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Cardinal Christian virtues, trust in God, sacrificial care for others, and persevering in all of it. So, older men, I ask you, does that describe you? Carefully consider where do you need to grow in practicing sound doctrine. Older women, what kind of spiritual fruit should the gospel produce in your life? God wants to have a word with you. Okay. Well, it's similar to the godliness required of older men. Hence the likewise, did you catch that? In verse 3, older men likewise. But, but what's uniquely important in your season of life? You must be reverent in behavior. In, in, in the words you speak, in the, in the actions you take, you're not driven by the, the shifting winds of emotion. There's a, a holy sobriety, a, a glad gravitas that, that marks your life. To, to be around a woman who's reverent in behavior 
to spend time with her is just to become a little bit more aware of the face of God. A godly older woman is not a slanderer, Paul says. What's that mean? It means you don't spread rumors or half-truths or third-hand information under the guise of, bless her heart or please pray for (laughs) so-and-so. No, you ruthlessly guard the public integrity of the church, the reputation of her members. You you make charitable judgments. The, The relational wake behind the boat of your life, so to speak, is filled with encouragement, not criticism. You must also not be a slave to much wine. Instead of seeking, what's what's he talking about here? Well, just don't drink too much. (laughs) Yeah, but what's the principle? Instead of seeking life in the bodily pleasures of food and drink, which are gifts from the Lord, amen? Yeah. You're not seeking life in them, though, even as you're enjoying them. You're finding your life in the Lord. You're not under the influence of, other things besides the Holy Spirit. And when life is difficult, you you don't escape by indulging the desires of your flesh or just spending hours zoning out on your phone. You turn to the Lord. Paul actually invents, in verse 3, a brand new Greek word. (laughs) For real. He did this to describe the influence of an older woman's words and deeds on the entire church around her. You know what it's called? I'll indulge myself for just one moment, Caleb. You must be kalodidaskalous. Say that really fast three times. Kalodidaskalous. What's that mean? A teacher of what is good. Literally, a good teacher. The influence of your life, Paul's saying, should should be to stir up all the people around you, men and women alike, to love and good work. So I ask you, older women, does that picture describe you? Where's God calling you to grow in practicing sound doctrine? Young women, let's let's listen to what God has to say to you. You too are commended, look at verses 4 and 5, to practice sound doctrine, to, to respond to the gospel in a kind of way that is distinctively Christian. So if you're married, that means loving your husband. Not because he deserves it or because he still gives you goosebumps, (laughs) but because God has loved you in Jesus Christ. Practicing sound doctrine means you joyfully submit to your husband's leadership. Provided he's not leading you into sin. Because the God who gave him to you is worthy of your trust. You're not submitting to him because you think he's perfect and amazing. You're submitting because you know your God is perfect and amazing. If you have children, practicing sound doctrine means devoting yourself to nurturing and caring for them. Loving your kids doesn't mean coddling them or 
making life easy for them? What's it mean? It means relentlessly pointing them to Jesus and teaching them what it means to to trust God and obey God and, and why he's worthy of our trust and worthy of our obedience. What's the world say? The world says the corporate world is where a real woman proves her worth. What does the Lord say? First of all, that your worth and value, whether you're a man or a woman, doesn't come from what you do, but what you are. You're an image of God. If you're in Christ, you're an adopted son or daughter of the king. We start with those things. Then we move on. But the world says, you're a real woman. You're going to prove it in the corporate world. What's the Lord say? I might call you to start a small business. I might even call you to manage an entire team at Capital One. But loving your husband and children, that comes first. That's your highest priority. And friends, what I just said is not traditional or patriarchal. It's biblical. Hear that. And that's a beautiful thing in God's sight. I, I carry on my heart as a shepherd. So many of the young women in this church, married women, with young children who can feel like they are just mindlessly doing the same things over and over and over again. And, you know, the church and other people and older women are just over here, like, rocking it for Jesus and battling the evil one. And you're just like, another load of laundry, another diaper. Oh, well, <laughs> another load of laundry. You know, it's a, and you can think, they're pleasing God, I'm surviving. Sister, you're not. You're not. What you're doing when you love your kids is a beautiful thing in the sight of your God. Please receive that. But having said that, we must not read these verses and say that if a woman really loves her kids, she will take up homeschooling. Or she will bake her own bread. Or she will remodel her entire home with pallet lumber. What do we say? Instead of that, we say, Proverbs 31, 27, a godly woman looks well to the ways of her household and doesn't eat the bread of idleness. That, that's what Paul means in verse 4 when he directs young women to be working at home or busy at home. He's asking, do, do you care for your family if you have one, young ladies? By caring for the place God's provided for them and for you? Or are you, are you constantly trying to escape into other activities where, where there's more immediate gratification? If you're a young woman, practicing sound doctrine means you have to be self-controlled. Like every other believer. You notice how often that shows up? Remember I said not exclusive, exhaustive. Here's an example. That includes upholding the integrity of your own family and your church family by, by walking in moral purity. Practicing sound doctrine means you practice kindness, which is not a 
be kind plastered all over middle school marquees as you drive around Chesterfield. No, no. Kindness is a, it's a, it's a kindness way of relating to other people that images the steadfast love of the Lord. Because he's slow to anger, so are you. Because he's quick to forgive, so are you. Because he's abundant in mercy, so are you. Young women, does, does all this describe you? I want you to carefully consider this morning, where, where, do, where do you need to grow? Where's God calling you to grow? Practicing sound doctrine. It's possible that Titus was still a relatively young man when Paul wrote this letter, which, which may explain why he addresses him alongside the other young men in verses 6 through 8. As we're just working through these lists of groups, illustrations that Sound doctrine is practiced in the details of life, every season of life. What, what does it, this look like if you're a young man? What do, you, what do you see here, guys? How long's the list? It's a list of, a long list of one. Paul chooses only one characteristic. Because young guys are just, they pretty much got it together. <laughs> no! I think it's because Paul knows that guys like simple. We, we, give me one thing. I, none of this like multiple stuff. It, give me one thing. I'm going to, you know, point me in the direction, coach. Okay. Verse six, look there. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Self-controlled. You realize, young guys, that right now, it's not just your parents talking to you through the pastor they paid to do it, or the pastor talking to you because he thinks you need to do something. When, when we read, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, your God is urging you. He's having a word with you. Because throughout the history of the church, Perhaps no other group has a more established reputation for lacking self-control than young men. Young men are uniquely vulnerable to being ruled by your passions, governed by your desires, including physical desires, instead of being ruled by the word of God. So many young men, your approach to what is true is, if it feels good, it must be true. It must be good. Guys, what, what does the gospel teach us in contrast to that? What's the gospel teach us? What does sound doctrine say? It starts with this. The whole reason we need a Savior not just as young men, but all of us, is what? That we are born into this world with a sinful nature. We don't come in as like bundles of angelic desires. We we come in with desires, but they've been corrupted by sin. You can't rely on your feelings, guys, or your passions to tell you the truth. They have to be tested. They have to be regulated. They, They have to be controlled by a more trustworthy authority than your desires. 
What's that? It's the word of God. Which is why being self-controlled isn't about just having a disciplined personality. Hi, I'm Matthew. I'm part of the 5 a.m. club. No, I'm actually not, okay? Being self-controlled is about submitting yourself under God's rule instead of your own rule. That's what it's about. It's about surrendering the control of your life to Jesus instead of calling all your own shots. Young guys, does that describe you? Where's God calling you to grow in practicing sound doctrine? Final group Paul addresses here is, is bond servants, or in some translations, slaves. It's not because there's confusion over the underlying word here. It's, it's doulos. The, the issue at stake here is that Paul's not primarily addressing folks who were under chattel slavery, as in our own country. Sadly, he's primarily speaking to bondservants, to, to men and women who had actually sold themselves to someone else to repay a debt or to secure food and shelter for themselves and their family. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul outlines, we don't have time to go here today, but read it later if you're interested. He outlines a biblical response to the entire institution, the first century institution of slavery. And in short, Paul says there, basically, A, God does not require you to leave your master. B, you, if you can gain your freedom, do it. <laughs> and C, because Christians are slaves of Christ, stop selling yourselves to other people. Go read the chapter. But here in Titus 2, Paul's not addressing the institution itself so much as the individuals who are still living within it and can't get out of it. What do you do then? What's practicing sound doctrine look like then? When, when you're in a relationship where, where someone else in this world has direct authority over you. And they may or may not be interested in your best interest. And you may get in a heap of trouble if you don't do what they say. Does that sound familiar to any of you? It can feel like our work, can't it? I think so. What's a Christian do then? Look at verse 9. Be submissive to your own masters in everything, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good faith. What, what's Paul getting at here? He's, he's working from this massive critical assumption. There is no authority on earth except that which God has established. There's a lot of application here for how we conduct ourselves in the workplace. Question, is your boss worthy of, of submission. Well, that's not the question Paul asked here. Here's, here's the right question. Is God worthy of your submission? Yes. Right? Always. Always, always, always. And so what do we do in our workplaces? We submit, as long as they're not telling us to disobey God's word and explicit command, we submit to our human bosses for Jesus' sake. Because we trust him to provide, we don't steal. Or clock in earlier or later than we're actually working. 
because we trust him to, to work all things together for good. If we're practicing sound doctrine, we should not have a reputation in our workplaces for raising ruckuses the moment someone tramples on our rights. As long as your company doesn't ask you to do something unbiblical, say that again, what's practicing sound doctrine look like? You work hard to advance your company's best interests, knowing you're ultimately serving the Lord. So, What's the point here? Whether you're an older man, an older woman, a younger woman, a younger man, or a bondservant, what are we all called to do? We're all called to practice sound doctrine, details of life. And I think it's hard to read through this list and and not see at least one area where we could grow. I hope that's your experience as we're working through this together. But, but, But here, really thankful for this, friend. God has done more than just call all of us to practice sound doctrine. He's actually given us a specific means to help us grow in doing it. And I jumped over it earlier so we could linger here now. And have no fear, points two and three will be significantly shorter than the first, okay? So point number two, if one is what we practice sound doctrine in every season of life, details of life, what's point number two? We practice sound doctrine through a culture of discipleship. We just reviewed the call. Here's the means. Culture of discipleship. I skipped over a very important phrase in verse 4 earlier, and I hope you noticed this. What does Paul write? Older women are to teach what is good, and so, or so that, for the purpose of training younger women. That's not an option, older women. Did you hear that? It's not an option. That is a command. Not any less of a command than be reverent in behavior or don't slander or don't be addicted to too much wine. It's not an option. It's, it's not for some older women in the church who feel really gifted in this area. It's a command to every older woman in the church of Jesus Christ. What's the command? The command is that tells us that practicing sound doctrine means more than just paying attention to your personal practice. For you to practice sound doctrine means for you to help other people practice sound doctrine. In other words, don't say, well, you know, at least I'm practicing sound doctrine over here. What a mess that person is. Love you, Jesus. If you're not helping other people practice sound doctrine, you're not practicing sound doctrine. Does that make sense? We need to feel the weight of that. When Paul's talking about training here, so train the young woman, he's talking about explaining to someone what it actually means to practice sound doctrine instead of just waiting for them to figure it out on their own. Why does he emphasize that? Because there's not a person on earth who can figure it out on their own. Right? We all need help. I need help. It doesn't matter, man, woman, young, old, we all need help to learn what's it mean to practice sound doctrine. And notice here, ultimately, Paul's simply using older, or exhorting older women to fulfill the mission that God has given every member of the church in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. What's Jesus say? 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Question, how do we make disciples in the church? How do we help people become, let's define disciple, wholehearted followers of Jesus in every area of life? Well, there are three things. Not rocket science. First, we go. (laughs) We go. We don't passively wait for someone to initiate a spiritual conversation or say, hey, I had a dream last night where I asked you for advice in my marriage and it was really helpful. So what you got to say? No, okay? We take initiative. We take initiative. We don't wait for people to come to us. We take initiative. Invite them out for coffee. Invite them into your home. Second, we baptize. What's that about? Well, as as we move toward people, we prioritize conversation about their relationship with God. We refuse to settle for just giving life advice. Well, when I had a 14-year-old, that was helpful. Glad it was helpful. But what do they need the most? It's not life advice. It's help to make sure they are living in the good of reconciled relationship with the Lord of life. That's the call. Third, we teach. We use our words to explain what does it mean to trust and obey God's word. Because, you know, that's what pastors are supposed to do. They make disciples for the church because they're good at it. No. (laughs) Ephesians 4, what does it say? My job as a pastor is to equip you for the work of ministry. The call to go and make disciples Make disciples by going, baptizing, teaching. That's your call, Christian. That's your job, your privilege. And Titus 2 helps us understand what that looks like practically. Okay, so back to verse 4 here. Did did you catch how many times, not just in this verse, but the whole passage, you catch how many times Paul uses that word likewise? Likewise, 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 likewise. What's up with that? Why does he do that? Because there are similarities, hear me, between what older men should do in the family of God and what older women should do in the family of God. There there are parallels between the way older women should relate to younger women and older men should relate to younger men. You follow me? And with Matthew 28 in view, we're not surprised. We're not surprised. Because the, the discipleship pattern that Paul establishes here for older women and younger women, is just an illustration of a larger discipleship culture in the entire church. Matthew 28 points us there, right? So, question, why then does Paul use a gender-specific relationship like older women and younger women to illustrate a broader discipleship culture? All on Matthew 28. Why would he do that? Here's why. Because gender-specific relationships, women with other women, men with other men, friends, they play a critical role in discipling one another to obey all Jesus has commanded us. Critical role. In other words, Titus is giving us a ministry paradigm in verse 4 
that is way bigger than your women's ministry. Please hear that. He's casting vision for a discipleship culture where where men take responsibility as spiritual fathers to help other men mature in the faith. And women take responsibility as spiritual mothers to help other women mature in the faith. That's not our only responsibilities as men and women in the church, but it is absolutely critical to the life and long-term health of the church. God wants us to be a church king's way where we're doing spiritual good to one another conversations as men and women is is normal. We want to be a church where where we don't talk about everything but this Sunday sermon as soon as this meeting is done. Right? Instead, we want to ask thoughtful questions to discover where God is already at work and and encourage each other to practice sound doctrine and all the details and seasons of life. And I'm, I, I linger here because I, I believe that God wants us to grow this year. He's inviting us to grow. This is good. In strengthening gender-specific discipleship at Kingsway. And that's not something fundamentally a program can do. Okay, Don't go there right away. All right, that, That's primarily accomplished through informal conversation in lots of ordinary moments all throughout the week. And I, I especially, can, can I have a particular word right now with older men and women in this church? As your pastor, I really want to challenge you in this area. Create time in your schedule to interact with younger men and women in this church where you are actively building them up in the you're training them in sound doctrine. You're, you're, you're teaching them to practice sound doctrine. That can look like inviting them over to do yard work with you. Yeah, be that selfish. It's really okay, all right? Create an opportunity. That, that could look like pulling them into a Bible study. That could look like taking a newly married couple and inviting them out for dinner. No, pl- please don't say to yourself, if you're an older man or woman in this church, well, I, I really need to get to know this woman before I invite her out to coffee, or I really need to first get to know this guy before I ask him if you want to read a Christian book with me. Like, eh, that would be awkward. I mean, maybe after five seasons of watching every Ravens game, then I would take, have taken step one in building the, the relationship necessary to consider inviting him to prayerfully consider studying a Christian book with me. No, no, no. An existing friendship is not a prerequisite for fruitful discipleship. Okay? Friendships are formed through the work of spiritual discipleship. Some of those may become lifelong friends. Some of those may be more seasonal friendships. Either way, that's fine. (laughs) And, And to this end, I'm really excited to announce that later this summer, some of you have heard about this, but haven't said this on Sunday, later this summer, We're going to launch monthly men's and women's Bible studies and larger group gatherings for men, for women, to help us grow in that gender-specific discipleship culture Titus is calling us to here. We're actually going to pray about this next Sunday in our prayer meeting, okay? Lord, would you build a culture of discipleship in this church, helping each other follow Jesus, practice sound doctrine, especially between men and between women, 
I think over many years, over many years, a lot of us in this body have mentally parked Titus 2 as the women's ministry chapter. Can I go here? Let's just go here for a second, if you would indulge me. I think we've parked it in that box. That's not entirely wrong because women are explicitly addressed in this chapter. But it's also much more. It's a whole lot more. Because God's calling us here, friends, to create a culture of gender-specific discipleship as spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers in the body of Christ. And Paul ends by reminding us in verse 10 why that matters. Why does it actually matter that we learn to practice sound doctrine as we help one another walk that out through discipleship, especially gender-specific discipleship, why does that even matter? We actually tells us not once, but three times. I want you to pay attention to this as we wrap up, okay? Think of it this way. Point number three, we practice sound doctrine to display the worth of Jesus. To display the worth of Jesus. So we practice it in the details of life. We practice it through a culture of discipleship. And we practice it for or to display the worth of Jesus. Question for you. Why does a guy who really loves collecting cars spend a ridiculous amount of hours waxing, polishing, washing his cars? I mean, it's nuts if you've ever known one of these guys. Hours. Why is a woman walking her new dog all too eager? To explain all the breed's characteristics to her neighbor. Why does a nine-year-old run up to his dad when he gets home from work and says, you got to see my new gel gun? Why does a mountaineer love to share summit pictures with fellow hikers? Because part of prizing something is desiring to share its worth and value with other people. If a wife tells her husband, I would really like some new clothes for Christmas, and he replies, isn't a garbage bag sufficient? Why is he in trouble? He is. You will be. Don't do that. Pastor said it. I thought it would work. Whatever it was supposed to do. You will be in trouble. Why? Well, because you effectively just told your wife she's not beautiful in your eyes. Because if she was, it would be a joy for you to to see her adorned in a dress that that tastefully complements and and displays her physical beauty. Part Part of prizing something is desiring to display its worth and value to other people. And that is exactly, look at verse 10, that is exactly, King's Way, what should motivate us to practice sound doctrine. Practicing sound doctrine means discipling one another to what? Display the worth of Jesus in every season of life. And it's not just in verse 10. Paul says it three different times in these verses, okay? Why should a young woman practice sound doctrine? Verse 5, that the word of God may not be revived. 
As a younger man, why should Titus practice sound doctrine? Verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Why should a slave practice sound doctrine? Verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Whereas the NIV says, so that in every way they would make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Motivations matter. And never more so than in why we practice sound doctrine in this church. Because it's possible to live a godly life compelled by a sense of guilt and shame. It's possible to live an outwardly godly life so other people will will think you're something or think you're special. It's possible to live a godly life so that your parents are not disappointed in you and so you don't lose your car keys. But, But there is another motivation, a better motivation, for practicing sound doctrine, living a life that glorifies God, that will sustain you to the end, friend. What is that? It is a burning desire, a holy ambition to make much of Jesus. To show the world, through the way you live, how good and glorious your God is. Brothers and sisters, you do not want to be a man or woman who denigrates the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't want people to see the way you live and conclude, I knew it. All that God stuff is just a joke. Or I knew it. All those Christians are just as selfish as the rest of us. No, 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 no. We hunger and thirst for the exact opposite, right? You want to be the mechanic who causes the other mechanic in the next bay or the student who causes the other student sharing your desk to say, there is something about the way they live that is different. There's a joy even in suffering, that that I can't explain. I've known a lot of Christians that maybe just want to run away from Christians. The more I get to know you, this is weird, but I just kind of want to know more. That's the effect of adorning. Adorning the gospel. No reason for practicing sound doctrine is more satisfying than making much of Jesus all that you do to convince everyone around you as best you can he's real he really is sovereign loving wise how do we know he's sovereign and loving and wise because of the gospel because of what he did for us at the cross as paul says in verse 10 he's just not he's not just god Adorn the doctrine of God. Adorn the doctrine. Practice the sound doctrine of who? Of God, our Savior. When we practice sound doctrine, we're not just adorning or making much of God in the abstract. We are adorning, we're making much of Jesus Christ. The gospel. Practicing sound doctrine. What's it mean? What's it all about? Discipling one another to display the worth of Jesus. In every season of life. Let's ask for God's help. Lord, you have called us to something good and glorious. We pray that you would make us this kind of church. A practicing sound doctrine. In every season. Through discipleship for 
the glory of Jesus Christ. We need your help, Lord. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that when you call us to practice sound doctrine, you provide in the Spirit all the power we need to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We're so grateful that you don't set this call before us and say, you know, good luck. Some make it, some don't. No, you fill us with your very power so that we might say at the end of our days, it wasn't me who did that. It was Christ in me.